everybody. Great to see you. Great to be back with you. Hey, before we get into it, I uh, want to let you know, make sure you stop by the lot because once again, I want you guys to literally experience what you have made possible. We've got our mobile kitchen out there. Of course, Josh is, is getting some stuff going for you. Um, you know, you'll see that parked all throughout different spots throughout our city as we seek to serve the underserved in the name of Jesus. And so again, all that happens because of what you guys made possible. So again, I want you guys to have a, literally a little taste of what, what we're going to be doing for folks. So make sure you stop by the lot and check that out uh, on your way out. Uh, my thanks to Pastor Steve for filling in last week. And uh, he was in Acts chapter 17, the first half. And so this week we're going to be in the second half. And I want to forewarn you at the very beginning that this text, it's going to, it's going to press in on you a little bit. So what we've been reading is the rise of early Christianity. And in just a few short months, Christianity has spread from about 120 followers of Jesus to several thousand in just a few months. How does that happen? Well, we've said it basically every single week within the first two minutes of me being with you, I explain it to you this way. There is only one reason. There's only one reason why Christianity is a thing, why it exists. And that reason is because of the resurrection. People experienced the death, burial, and post-resurrection life of Jesus Christ. At one time, there were several hundred people gathered together having the same experience. Now, when you have that, that experience of, of seeing someone come back from the dead, Jesus taught, he ate with people, you're going to talk about that. That's the biggest event in your life. And see, that's what's really cool about your Bible is because what you have in the New Testament is a collection of eyewitness, first-hand accounts. People saying, let me tell you about my story with the resurrected Jesus. Let me tell you what happened to me. They couldn't keep the message silent, and so it spread. It's the resurrection of Jesus that is the ignition spark that started the engine of Christianity. It's this fledgling movement, and within a few months, many thousands of people will come to faith. Now, a couple weeks ago, we were introduced to the significant church that was planted in the city of Antioch. And it was significant for a couple of reasons, but perhaps primarily because this was a church that was missions-minded. They send out two missionaries, Paul and Barnabas. And as Paul and Barnabas go out, they train up others. And within about a dozen years, there are churches all throughout Europe and Africa. Many people today mistakenly think that Christianity is a white Western faith. That's not the case. Christianity was in the Middle East and in parts of Africa hundreds of years before America was even thought of. Even today, it's estimated that there are 100 million Christians in China. Now, the history of the early church back then in the first century AD is kind of like the history of the church today. It's like a two-sided coin. On one side, you have the message going forth, and people are open-minded, and they're open-hearted, and they embrace that message. And then there are others who reject it 
And it's not enough to reject it, they're hostile towards it. So, for example, this is why Paul, in one moment, he's in a city, and he's sharing the gospel, telling people about Jesus, and he sees many conversions, right? Many people say, I'm, I'm in, I see it, I see it, I'm convinced. Later on that afternoon, in the same city, Paul is driven out and beaten. Well, the second half of Acts chapter 17 is a continuation of Paul's missionary journey. And it's in chapter 17 that he enters the great city of Athens. And what happens at Athens It's one of those moments in church history where it's kind of like there's a pause. And at the same time, there's a crescendo. Because what we're about to read is not only, it's something that we hold here, dear here at Illuminate. If you look on our walls, we have five core values that have guided us since, from since the very beginning. Almost every single one of these core values is expressed in our text this morning, all right? So with that, Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, the them refers to his fellow missionaries, Silas and Timothy, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city of Athens was filled with idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. Then he goes into the marketplace every day and he reasons with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what is this guy babbling about? What is he talking about? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. It's like he's talking to us about some gods that we're not aware of. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. It was impossible for Paul not to preach about Jesus and the resurrection. It's like every time he opened up his mouth and started sharing the gospel, it was always Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him, and they brought him to the Oropagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there in the city of Athens, they would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul is in this great city of Athens, which presumably he'd never been in before. And in the first century AD, Athens did not have the political influence it had in the past, but it was still the intellectual and the religious gem of the Roman world. The Romans loved power. And about the first century BC, they began to have a love affair with this Greek city of Athens. And so many Romans populated. So you have Greeks, you have Romans. Of course, it was all under Roman authority. Romans loved power, they loved authority, but the Greeks loved knowledge and intellect and thought. And Athens was the seat of it all. Aristotle. Plato, Socrates, Athens was the home to these great Greek thinkers. Greek was the place for the latest and greatest philosophies. Paul enters, waits for Silas and Timothy. Perhaps he's doing a little sightseeing. 
and he's struck by the environment because everywhere you look there are idols idols and idols and there's no place like Athens it's the very best of idolatry the best of the best sculptors and architects lived in Athens you have the finest altars you have the finest sculptures you have the greatest architectural temples all dedicated to the gods it's filled with idols really fascinating Greek phrase because this phrase literally means to drown in other words the city is suffocating in its idolatry. Aphrodite, Zeus, Hermes, Apollos, all that they represent, they're everywhere. A god for every pleasure and vice. Perhaps a modern-day equivalent would be our neighbors to the north, Vegas. So several years ago, many years ago now, when my family was little, kids were very small, we were taking a road trip to Lake Tahoe. And I thought, you know, it would be fun to take the family to Vegas and spend the night. So we pull off the highway. And I remember looking at Jill and I said, I think, I think you guys are really going to like this. It's going to be a lot of fun. So many fun things to see. About two seconds later, we roll up behind a taxi. And on the back of this taxi is a sign. And on this sign, I'm going to keep this, try to keep this at PG-13 rating. I'm going to try. On the back of this sign, there is the bare posterior of four ladies. <laughs> and they're advertising a gentleman's club. And my kids are like... <laughs> and my wife is like... And I'm like, within two seconds, the idols of the city are on full display. Paul sees what's around him, and he's grieved by it, and his heart aches. Why? Because he sees that the people are being led away from the true God. Question. How do you respond to the idolatry in your city? Well, first you have to recognize it. You have to see it for what it is. Now, if we were in some, some other part of the world, let's say in India, this would be very, very easy. Because there are, there are idols scattered all throughout India. If you've ever been, you've witnessed this. Sometimes, literally, in parts of India, on every street corner, there is a figurine, a sculpture, an idol. Because in Hinduism, there are over 330 million gods. In fact, you can go online and you can buy some of those little statues and figurines. Idolatry everywhere. Very obvious. You know, but we in the West, especially perhaps here in America, we, we fancy ourselves as being 
more sophisticated, more intelligent. Uh, we're more enlightened. Uh, I don't think there aren't too many of us that would be caught bowing down to some little man-made figurine and giving it our total allegiance, worship. Uh, but what is an idol? I heard it said once that if you want to know the real idols of your city, find out what the tallest buildings are. That could be one indicator of what the idols in your city are. But at the heart of idolatry is really your heart. See, that, see idolatry is the worship of something. And since we were all created to worship, we all, in a sense, were prone to elevate and create idols. And so, in a very real sense, an, an idol is anything that captures your heart more than God. Therefore, and this is a scary thing, even good things can become idols when we elevate them to the place of primacy in our lives. More on that in a moment. So, Paul does more than just look around and see the idolatry and feel it because the word for see is a really interesting Greek word. It's not a common one. It's not the, the common one that you would expect here. It's the Greek word theorontai, from which we get our English word theory. So what he does is he sees and he begins to theorize. Now when you form a theory, what you're doing is you're gathering information, you're assembling the data, you're thinking critically, and Paul says, how? In light of all that I see, how can I reach these people with the gospel? See, he's beginning to think in light of what he sees and how he can break through and present Jesus. So he does as his custom. He begins in the synagogue. Paul was a Jew. He would have a welcome mat into most synagogues, at least at first. And in the synagogue, he would be handed the portions of the scripture that would correspond to the prophets as they spoke about a forthcoming Messiah, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Micah chapter 5. He'd be all over the place and he'd be saying, you see all these prophecies? They're really, really specific in their content. Well, I'm here to tell you that Jesus fulfilled all of them. Save the ones that are yet to come because he's coming back and there will be a judgment day. More on that in a second. But Jesus is the fulfillment of all of them. So he would go into the synagogues. He would reason over and over. You see reason. See, nowhere in the Bible does it say, come to faith in God because it's the emotional thing to do. No, your emotions will follow, but it doesn't start with emotion. It's reason. How many times have you heard us say, Christianity is not a blind faith. There's a mountain of evidence that is incredibly persuasive. All of these imponderables that surround Christianity that can't be applied to any other faith or worldview. Only in Christianity, the hard root of it is found in Jesus as the fulfillment of these prophecies, doing what he said he would do. He reasons in the synagogue, and then from there he goes into the marketplace. Now, this is where it gets really interesting in the text because I have a feeling that Paul is just, he's stepping into something now. He's applying his theory. The marketplace, the Greek word for marketplace is, is agora. The agora in Athens was the heartbeat of the city. It was the seat of politics. You bought and sold. It was the seat of commerce. Additionally, it was a public courts were there. It was just the heartbeat of life. 
It was also the place where people shared influential new ideas. In fact, a man would stand and he would, the word is herald, to make proclamation. Here's a new thought. Here's a new philosophy. All that took place in the Agora. In fact, some, um, some news outlets actually have the word herald in their name. That harkens back to the Agora. So, Paul enters this space and he begins to preach Jesus and the resurrection. And uh, these critical thinkers begin to listen. Paul continues to speak. I would have loved to have seen Paul do this. Some Christians think that uh, Christians should be retreating from the culture. That's a bad idea, guys. You won't find that anywhere in the scriptures. We are called to reach it, not run from it. Some Christians think that their faith should be only private and not public. That is impossible in the world that we live in. Because if you're going to have any kind of faith in the gospel, in Jesus, you will eventually run against the hard wall of culture. It will come to light. Um, as an example, Daniel. He serves the pagan king so well. Because of his character, he rises the ranks, becomes one of the king's favored men. A law is passed that no one should worship, pray to anyone except for the king. Daniel has this prayer habit, praying to his God daily, but now that's against the law. And Daniel's like, listen, I am cool with any man-made law as long as it doesn't transcend the law of God. But when man's laws transcends God's laws, time out. It's not going to work for me. So what does Daniel do? He prays to his God, and he gets caught. Through this experience, it's difficult for Daniel. It's not easy. But through this experience, Daniel's God is put on display for who he really is. So for one to say, I just have a private faith, not a public one, that is to say, eventually, you will be influenced by the culture. And as Christians, we're not influenced by the culture, but we transform the culture. Our faith is both private and public. The question we often ask is, how? How do we engage the culture in a way that changes it? And that's a good question. We're always asking the how question, though, it seems like. Uh, how do I... How do I get a good job? How do I build a good career? How do I find a spouse? You know what's interesting in the Bible? You will never find, okay, step one, step two, step three. You never find these easy, these clear steps. You don't find that in the Bible. When you ask the how question, you're not going to find that in the Bible. Here's what you find instead. Concentrate on character. It's not a three-step. It's a let's talk about character. So, in other words... How do, I find a, how do I find a godly spouse? Concentrate on being the kind of person you want to be married to. And then you know what happens? You become incredibly attractive. Uh, how do I build a career for myself? The Bible says be faithful in the little things. Over time, you will become irreplaceable, indispensable. And you know what? You look back and you, you, you realize 
the career has come. But not because I've applied this step, then this step, then, but simply because I'm trying to pattern my life after Jesus Christ. And God always blesses the greatest likeness to his son. So Paul's heart is moved. He speaks. Um, there's, this, uh, there's this movement that begins to take place around him as he takes his faith public. Now, of course, not everybody will respond in the same way. In Paul's crowd, there are Epicureans, and Epicureans had the uh, motto, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. So basically, it was live for today, live for the flesh. Um, the, the, uh, you die, you're buried in the ground, and that's it. There's no more. Total annihilation, and that's it. So if you have to take advantage of people in this world, hey, that's fine. Who cares? What does it matter, right? They're going to die too. There's no consequences, no repercussions. So get all you can. This is all you have in this life. Live for the pleasure. Meanwhile, you had the Stoics, and they believed the opposite. No, 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 no. You want to live life with honor and dignity and respect. Paul is introducing a new idea. Some say, what's he babbling about? Others, he seems to be introducing gods that we have not heard of, and we want to know more. Specifically, he's talking about this Jesus and that he came back from the dead. Now, this is new. Now, we haven't heard that in Athens before, but it's certainly an idea worth hearing. So this is kind of like the first TED Talk, verse 21. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. History bears this out. They're hearing something new, and now Paul is escorted to the Oropagus. So he's taken from the Agora to the Oropagus. Now, the Oropagus... Um, it's also known as Mars Hill by the Romans. Let me show you a picture of that place uh, today. It's obviously, a, it would have changed quite a bit, but this is, this is Mars Hill. This is the Oropagus. So it's this place where the most influential thinkers in Athens would gather. And there was a council of men who were judged fit to consider whether an idea was worthy or not of listening to. And so Paul gets brought before this council, all right? So now he begins to talk, and he delivers a gem of a message that contextualizes the gospel. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are religious. This is a great start. He's very respectful. Number one rule in public speaking is know your audience. He doesn't say, Men, Turn in your Bibles to, this is, this is a Greek-Roman crowd. They have no idea who the Hebrew God is. They have no idea that the Hebrews even have a sacred text. So he begins his presentation with where the listener is at. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So they have all these altars upon which sacrifice was made in order to appease the very capricious Greek gods. Remember, the Greek gods were far off. They were distant. They kind of messed with humans, you know, just for their own amusement, but had no real interest in them. Meanwhile, they would punish humans if they weren't served. But you have this, this altar to the unknown god. What therefore you worship as unknown, I'm going to tell you about so he says, even according to your own faith system, there is room for something that you don't know. Now I'm going to tell you what you don't know. That is the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, 
He does not live in temples made by man. So right away, Paul goes big. And he uses God's own introduction. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God says, okay, uh, let's see. How can I reveal myself to humanity? Why don't we do this? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. This is my paraphrase. Hey, everybody, look around you. Look at nature. Do you see the order and the design? Do you see the incredible complexity? And of course, we understand complexity today unlike they could 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago. It's simply like saying, look, just look at a DNA strand. It's unbelievably complex, and yet it's programmed. It thinks. I did all that. I created all of that. I created the world, stars, heaven. I created the universe. And so then Paul says, God is too big. The God that you don't know, you're all building, you're building temples. You've got altars, the place for your gods to reside. But the God you don't know would never fit in anything made by human hands because he stands outside of his own creation. He stands outside of time. God exists on an infinite amount of planes simultaneously. No, he's way too big to fit in anything that you would make by hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. A little bit of historical context will help you understand. In uh, about 600 BC, Athens was hit with a super gnarly plague. A lot of people died. This one guy named Epimenides had an idea. He said, clearly this is happening because the gods are upset with us, so we need to make right sacrifice to our gods. So here's an idea. Let's release a, release a bunch of sheep out into the city. And wherever any particular sheep, an individual sheep, lays down, we will make a sacrifice to the nearest god at that temple. And so that's what they did. They released these sheep. The sheep are wandering around, and the sheep you know, is laying down next to the temple of Apollo. Then, boom, they're making sacrifices to the god Apollo. But what happened was some of these sheep, they keep walking around, and they're like walking in weird parts of the city and outside the city, and then they lay down, and they're like, uh-oh, we don't have a temple near this sheep. What are we going to do? They created a temple to the unknown god. And you come to the first century AD, and this is exactly what they're talking about. Just in case we miss something, we don't want another plague coming down, so let's make some, some sacrifices to this God that we may not know just to cover all our bases so that nothing bad happens to him. He can't be served by human hands like he needs you. See, you have all these sculptures and these, you know, you've got your Greek sculptures, the Greek gods and everything. You know, these things have to be maintained. Because if you, leave this, if you leave Zeus out in the cold for too long, that stone carving, that's going to decay. It's going to get mold. It's going to look bad. You've got to refresh it all the time. Since he himself gives to all mankind life, that's a huge statement, and breath. Oh, and let's just say everything. Gives you your life, gives you the air that you breathe. That's the God I'm talking about. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God only, not only creates man, but he's involved with him personally. All of this language is very personal language. This is a personal God. This is all new. 
to the Greeks, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and they'll find him. But he's actually not far from each one of us. He's he's just starting to kind of sharpen the pencil now a little bit. There is a God. He created everything. He can't be served by human hands. He's way too big for that. But he can be known. In fact, he's very close to us. Again, this idea is radical. For, and then what Paul does is he quotes some of their own Greek philosophers. In him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Now, they apply it to something different. Paul takes their words and applies it to God. He quotes actually two Greek poets that were well-known. Quotes them because their words reflected biblical truth. And at the same time, he's building a bridge to his audience. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In other words, you're going to have to radically change your thinking about who God is. But the times of ignorance God overlooked, now he's pressing in. See, before, you didn't know this, but now you know it. You were ignorant, now you're no longer ignorant, you're going to be held accountable. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Well, that's all just talk. Okay, there's a God, he's big, he created everything, gives man his breath, his life. Uh, He wants us to repent because there's a judgment day coming. Okay, prove it. Prove it. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance. You want to know how this day is coming? I'm about to drop it on you. Because he raised that man from the dead. Period. You all have your Greek mythology. You have your beautiful fantasies. You have your statues. You have your temples. But let me tell you about the God that you don't know. He is real. He is bigger than you know. And he is closer. He is closer than you imagine. And he's asking you to change your thinking about who he is and about the way you live your life. Because there is a judgment day coming because this God is holy and righteous and true and he can't turn a blind eye like your capricious great gods do. This God is just. And there will be a judgment day. And here's how you know. The harshest, harshest thing about all the wrongs we do is that our sin keeps us in the grave. It's death. The wages of sin is death. So if God raised a man to life... Wouldn't it make sense, let's reason together, that that man then has power to extend life over death to those whom he wants to? So it's brilliant because Paul roots this entire argument in a historical fact. And he says, this is the reality of the situation. The resurrection is the factual basis for everything that I tell you. Now, the results seem small to some. Only two people respond to this message. Uh, Many others mock, no matter. Paul was faithful in acting on his heart for the lost people of Athens, moved with compassion because he sees the idols everywhere and he knows judgment is coming. Now, you may be thinking, what does this have to do with me now? Everything. Because the root of our problems 
is idolatry. What is yours? Probably a good thing that you've turned into the greatest thing. I love my spouse. I love my wife. I love Jill. I love my kids. They make super lousy gods. You know why? Because they're really needy. They're super needy. And they're never satisfied. And they're kind of fickle. Just like me. They were never meant to be objects of worship, but everybody worships something. How do you know what it is for you? So here's the question. What is it in my life, if I no longer had that thing, that person, that identity, if I no longer had it, my life would no longer be worth living? Whatever the answer to that question is, you have just explode, you have just What's the word I'm looking for? Thank you. You have just exposed your heart's greatest affection. All right? Uh, And so here's what happens. The gospel invites you to make this exchange. You exchange what was never meant to be an idol for what was meant to be truly worshipped. The God who created you, who sent his son to die for you, who came back from the dead. There will be a day of judgment if you believe in Jesus and you've placed your faith in him to correct all the wrongs that you've done, you were born into a dysfunctional relationship with your creator, God. Don't deny that. We all do stuff that's jacked up in this world. That's why the world is such a mess. Jesus came to make all that right. That's why we worship Jesus rather than spouse, family member, some identity, whether it's, hey, this is my, man, identity is the thing in our culture. I mean, it is the thing. Identity comes in so many different shapes and sizes. There's sexual identity, gender identity, career identity, you name it. Everything's got the identity label on it. Why is that? Because we all want to be somebody. You are somebody. How do you know that? Jesus died on the cross for you. See, doesn't it always comes back to Jesus. And this is the cool thing. When you make that exchange, the good things in life that you were never meant to worship, you actually end up enjoying those things more because you're not enslaved to them. They find their proper place in your life. And you can really enjoy your spouse. You can really enjoy your kids. You know, they're going to let you down. That's okay. You have something else that you worship that won't let you down. So those things actually have greater enjoyment because they don't master you anymore. You're not a slave to how they think about you. So you're freed up to love them even more. You're freed up to actually love them in the way that you are loved by God. So, you know, maybe you're here and you're like, no, 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 my my faith is very, very private. It's not public. Just a matter of time, my friend, and you are swallowed up by the culture. I guarantee it. There is a day of judgment spared by God's wrath by embracing his love through the cross of Jesus. Man, to be identified with that it's special. That's why I love baptisms, man. It's, it's one of the, my favorite things that we do. We get to see another one of our core values is transform lives. It's the power of God at work. People saying, I was once like this, but then I've been set free. I once had these idols, and sometimes they still have their pull, but now I'm drawn, drawn by the pull of the cross of Jesus, and my life has changed. So we want to hear from some of them now. Let me pray. Father, 
Uh, it's, uh, this is a text that presses in on every single one of us. I'm at the front of the line. So God, in this moment, I just want to confess to you my own idolatry, the idols, uh, the ones I'm, I'm, that I'm, I have a natural disposition that I'm just drawn to, that it, those idols rob me of my life. They don't give me life. They rob me of my life. God, give us a clearer picture of the cross, the love of Jesus, who you are as author, creator, and sustainer of the world, being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, for these that are about to share their public testimonies, God, a special blessing upon them. All for your glory, we pray. God's people said, amen.